Welcome to the Hedgemaker Broadcast. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied to the nation of Israel many long years ago. Ye have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. He also said that the Lord sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries, located in beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, is attempting to stand in the gap and make up the hedge in these days of spiritual compromise and theological apostasy. Our biblical and historical Christian heritage challenges us to fill in the gaps left by those who have moved away from their biblical foundation. Listen now as we build up the wall and make up the hedge through sound preaching from God's Holy Word. Let's go to Mark chapter 14 and we'll read verses 22 through 26. I'm entitling the lesson, the message tonight, The Servant and the Lord's Table. And we'll try to make some practical applications of this as well. The Lord's uh, instituting the Lord's Table here. Earlier in the chapter, we found the Lord giving instructions to his disciples to go and prepare for the Lord's table. We often call this the Last Supper. It's not really the last one. There's another one coming. All right? (laughs) That's the end of the message. But uh, the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. Mark 14, verse 22, And as they did eat, Jesus took bread. And he blessed and brake it and gave it to them and said, Take eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. We're going to look at four different acts or activities that are a part of this Lord's Table observance. The first act of the Lord's Supper involves the bread. He took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. And he gave it to them. And we're going to notice, I think, four things about each one of these activities, except maybe the last one. So, four things about the bread. He took it into his hands. It reminds me of the time when the loaves and the fishes were put into the Lord's hands. The little boy had the lunch, and the disciples said, well, we have this little boy's lunch, but what are these among so many? And the Lord basically said, give it to me. And they put the lunch in Jesus' hands, and he multiplied it, break break it and multiply it. Uh, So he took it into his hands. And now the fellow that I'm using here as a commentary and such is suggesting that the taking of the bread into his hands and also the taking of the cup is a picture of his voluntary death. He didn't have to do this. He didn't have to die. But he voluntarily gave himself for us. And so his destiny was in his hands. He gave himself willingly that we might have eternal life. Let's go to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. John, chapter 10. Here, the Lord is talking about the sheep and the shepherd. And he, of course, is the shepherd. And we are the sheep. And he's talking about the shepherd losing his life. But look at what he says. John, chapter 10, and verse number 15. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. 
and I lay down my life for the sheep. Okay, he's, his life wasn't taken from him as such. He laid it down. He had the power to, we sing the song, I don't remember if it's actually a Bible verse, he could have called 10,000 angels okay, to deliver him, but he didn't do that. And then look at verses 17 and 18. Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. So the Lord gave himself freely for us. And the bread, of course, is a picture of his broken body. As he broke the bread, his body was broken. Not his bones, but his body. Then he took the bread, and then he blessed it, or he gave thanks. Okay. Uh, now, we don't know exactly what he thanked the Lord for, but perhaps for the deliverance, the provision, the assurance of life, knowing, of course, that he's going to die, but that he was going to rise again. He already predicted that with his disciples. So perhaps thanking the Lord for the victory and for the deliverance, for the provisions, all of those things, thanking the Lord for the bread. We do that when we observe the Lord's table. We thank the Lord for his broken body. And then he broke the bread. This, of course, symbolized his body uh, was to be broken or sacrificed as a victim of man's uh, deliverance and delivered himself up to the hands of the scribes and Pharisees and so forth. It's interesting that the early church referred to the Lord's table as the breaking of the bread. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread. No doubt a reference to the Lord's table, the observance of the Lord's table, the breaking of bread. Also, 46. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. And then it's also referenced that way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 16. The cup of blessing which we break is it not the communion of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break? Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So the breaking of the bread, that was the way that they referred to the Lord's table. Under the Old Testament, the broken bread pictured the sufferings of the Israelites. I don't have a Bible reference for that. In the New Testament, of course, here in 10.16 of Corinthians, and also, since you're in Corinthians, yet maybe uh, chapter 11 and verse number 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. So it's a picture of the broken body of the Lord Jesus. Of course, again, he did not have any bones broken, but his body broken. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The uh, chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And then the Lord took that broken bread, and then he gave it to the disciples. Okay, that's all verse 22. He did eat, uh, as they did eat, Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave to them. And then, of course, he says, take, eat, this is my body. All right, take, eat, this is my body. This means that a man is to take and receive Christ into his life. Now the phrase, this is my body, the Catholics use the phrase corpus 
Christi, the body of Christ. In fact, the priest says that at the observance of the Mass. He lays the wafer on the tongue of the worshiper and says, Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. It represents the body of Christ. We understand from the, from the scriptures that it does not transform into the body of Christ, either by consubstantiation or transubstantiation. Catholic, Lutheran, whichever position is taken there, the bread does not transform into the body of Christ. It is simply a symbol or a picture of the broken body of the Lord. So when the Lord says, this is my body, we understand all of those passages, whether it's in the Gospels or whether it's here in Corinthians, to be, this is a picture of my body, represents my body. Let's go back to the Gospel of John again. John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And as a result of that incident in the life of Christ, the Lord is talking about himself as the bread of life. John chapter 6, verse 48. I am that bread of life. Now, does Jesus mean he is a loaf of bread? No, it's a picture. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness. Manna was a form of bread that God created for the children of Israel. Using that analogy, they did eat the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. In other words, the bread of life. He himself is the bread that gives life that a man may not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, now again, we're not talking about literal bread, we're talking about taking Christ as Savior. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Many folks in various religions believe that taking the Mass or Communion gives them eternal life. No, no, no. These are symbols of what Christ did for us. Taking Christ as Savior, the criterion for salvation in the Bible is always believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's not the doing of something like baptism or going through catechism or observing the Mass or the, or the Communion. Those things are just things. They do not save anyone. So the analogy is there. Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. He's God. Okay? Become flesh. Emmanuel. God with us. And if any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Why did Christ die? So he could become a loaf of bread? No so that he could give eternal life. He died in our place. So, And again, he goes on there. Jump down to verse uh, 54. Whoso eateth my flesh... Now see, do we eat the literal flesh of the Lord? No, that's cannibalism. It's a picture. And drinketh my blood. Do we drink blood? No, the Bible's dead set against drinking blood. Hath eternal life. It's a picture of taking the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and applying it spiritually by faith 
to our lives. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. So the manna was only a partial picture of Christ. It gave life to, physical life to the Israelites during that wilderness wandering, but it did not give them eternal life. They are dead. He that eateth of this bread, he himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall live forever. So we have that uh, analogy of the bread of life, and he gave this bread to his disciples. The second act of the Lord's Supper involves the cup. Verse 23 of our text, Mark 14:23. he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. All right, so again, we think we're going to see four things here as well. He took the cup into his hands, once again, a teaching of his voluntary death. No one took his life from him. He gave it up, uh, and he held his own life in his own hands, and uh, gave it up. He gave thanks again, okay, and again for the deliverance through uh, sacrifice. We pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our observance of the Lord's table, thanking the Lord for his shed blood. And then he gave the cup to the disciples, and they drank of it. So they probably had a communion cup at that time, one cup that they passed around. And then he goes on to say, in verse 24, he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. So now he is identifying the cup as his blood and the uh, New Testament. Does that wine, and, and I believe the wine in the Bible is grape juice, unfermented grape juice. I believe there are different words, particularly in the Old Testament, for the various degrees of wine. In the New Testament, basically, I have one word for wine, so the context has to tell you. I don't think when Jesus turned water into wine, he made an intoxicating beverage. I don't believe that. I believe he made grape juice out of water. The fruit of the vine. And I believe that's what they're drinking here. Does that wine become blood? No. They're not literally drinking blood. So he says this is, again, a picture of, this blood is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Now, we sort of talked, we did, we did talk, we didn't sort of talk, we talked about the covenants, the biblical covenants this morning. And so let me refer you back to that chart that I passed up this morning. The last of those covenants on the list that I gave you is the new covenant. Let's go to the book of Jeremiah and look at the prophecy regarding the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verses 31 to 34. Now, this is a prophecy regarding the nation of Israel. I think this is the fulfillment of the blessing part of the promise that God gave to Abraham. It goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. But Jeremiah 31, verse 31, here's what the prophecy says. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand 
to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What covenant would that be? When they brought out of Egypt, that would be the law covenant or the Mosaic covenant, right? So this is different from the law code. Not like that one, which my covenant they break. They disobeyed it. Although I wasn't a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. And for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now that's a prophecy, of, a promise, a prophecy and a promise of the Lord putting the law in their inward parts, in their hearts, writing it in their hearts. Now when Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, I think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, in chapter 8 of Hebrews, he quoted that passage of Scripture and applies it to New Testament believers. Jeremiah clearly says, this is for the nation of Israel. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 8, let's see, let's go back before verse 8, let's go to verse 6. Hebrews 8, 6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, that's Christ. Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. Better covenant, it's a new covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Again, I think he's referring to the covenant made with Moses, the law code, and it was good, but it could not bring about salvation. In other words, you can't get saved by just observing the law. Some people today think they'll get saved by doing the Ten Commandments. The problem is you can't observe the Ten Commandments. We've all violated them in one way or another. So we can't be saved by keeping the law. So for that reason, it was an inferior covenant. All right, verse 8, For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, here's the quote from Jeremiah, saith the Lord, When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be unto them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord. There's no need for that because the Lord will put that in their hearts. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to the unrighteous and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant he hath made the first old. Now, that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Now, in verse 6, he talked about the Lord coming to make a better covenant. And then you go on into chapter 9 of Hebrews, and he talks about the difference between the first covenant and some of the things about the law. But Christ has come, to take the place of that. Look at chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, 
by a greater and a more perfect tabernacle, not with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of bulls and of goats, but by his own blood he entered in into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So Jesus is saying, my blood is the New Testament, or the New Covenant. Now when Christ shed his blood, right, we know the rest of the New Testament, the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is the purchase price for our redemption. So what this New Covenant is all about, when God takes the nation of Israel and puts his laws in their hearts, it means that they will come to a personal saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will believe in the Lord. I believe that time is yet coming. I think it's coming in the tribulation when Israel will turn to the Lord. Right now there are Jewish people who are saved, but the bulk of Jewish people are not saved. Uh, They do not recognize the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Uh, They will do that come uh, the time when the Lord uh, changes their hearts. So, the criterion for salvation, Old Testament, New Testament, is always faith in the Lord. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Not do the sacraments or practice the Lord's table or be baptized or keep the commandments. That's never the criterion for salvation. Those things may be an outworking of salvation. Once I've come to know Christ as Savior, I'm baptized. I I step forward in in believer's baptism, publicly acknowledge my relationship to the Lord, and I'm immersed in water as a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and a picture that I'm going to now live for the Lord. We observe the Lord's table as a picture that we're already born again, and we are following the Lord in a communion with Him. That's the symbolism of the Lord's table. So on this chart, when I have the new covenant there on the very bottom, And we looked at those references, and you can also look at Ezekiel chapter 36, where Ezekiel says about Israel that God will put a new heart, take the stony heart out of the cold stony heart out of them and put a heart of flesh in them. So God changes their heart, uh, which means they trust the Lord as Savior. So God puts a new heart within them. The baptism and the Lord's table are not means of salvation. They are simply symbols, pictures, that we have made this covenant with the Lord about salvation. We have trusted him and his provision of salvation. So when the Lord says this here in Mark chapter 14, verse number 24, this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for you, that's what he means. It's a matter of personal salvation in the Lord. Now, there is a third act that we see as part of the Lord's table in this passage of Scripture, Mark chapter 14, and it's in verse 25. Verily I say unto you, Jesus said, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine. Notice how he said that there. The fruit of the vine. Clearly grape juice. Until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. There is a future. There are two great promises here with this. These promises have to do with the future. There is a glorious coming kingdom and a glorious celebration. Both of them have to do 
with the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus promised the day when all genuine believers would sit down with him in the kingdom of God and they would sit down at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the promise that God gave to them. Now, let's go ahead and read Revelation chapter 19. Chapter 19 begins, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven. Who's in heaven? It's the saints in heaven. Those of us who know the Lord as Savior will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and then the Lord, the world will be plunged into that seven-year tribulation. So we are in heaven, much people in heaven, saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore. That's chapter 17 and 18. For her fornication, verse 3, her smoke is uh, rose up forever and ever. The four and twenty elders, which I think represent the church saints. We see those in chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation. And the four beasts fell down from and worshipped the God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. The voice that came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, ye that fear him, both small and great. And heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the voice of many waters, as the voice of, of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. The wife of the Lamb, I believe, is a New Testament saint. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Then he saith unto her, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is probably where we observe the Lord's table. We sit down together with the Lord and have the broken body and the shed blood again. Now we already... In this New Testament era, we already do observe the Lord's table, as the Bible says, in remembrance of me, Jesus said. So when the observance will take place in this kingdom, it will also be a memorial. These people are already saved. So they're going to be memorializing or remembering what the Lord did for them. In fact, you see this in this chapter, and uh, look at verse 1 again, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. We're praising the Lord for his salvation that he's already granted to us. Uh, They've been redeemed from every nation. And you can see this periodically in chapters 4 and 5 and other places throughout the book of Revelation, those who praise the Lord. So there'll be a glorious kingdom and a glorious celebration, sort of a re-celebration. There's one more thing that happens with the observance of the Lord's table here in Mark chapter 14. And that is the singing of the hymn. Verse 26 of Mark 14. Mark 14, 26. And when they had sung in him, they went out unto the Mount of Olives. Now, think where we are here. The Lord has been predicting his death. You think ahead, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they saw the death of Christ. They didn't recognize yet the resurrection, they're very sorrowful. So, despite the sorrow, the uncertainty of what lay ahead in the eyes of the disciples, 
They sung in him in celebration of the great hope which God gives of deliverance and salvation. I wish we knew what hymn that was. We don't have records of the hymns. that We do know that the saints sang the psalms. Paul mentions in the book of Ephesians the psalms, uh, the hymns, and the spiritual songs. The hymns are possibly like we have hymns, written by men, not the psalms themselves. But there is joy that's expressed in the midst of sorrow. That is a challenge for us. Jesus is saying to his disciples in John chapter 15 when he's teaching them about future events, These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. We're commanded by the Apostle Paul, Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Not just when there are good times, but always. You can rejoice when there's sorrow or perplexity or uncertainty. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. This is Dr. Lee Hennies, and we want to thank you for listening to the Hedgemaker broadcast today. Most of our broadcasts are portions of a sermon that I have preached at church. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries is the preaching, teaching, and writing ministry for myself. You can visit us on the web at hedgemaker.org. And let's be encouraged to stand in the gap and make up the hedge until Jesus comes again. (laughs) 